The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Nice to see everybody. It's been a while since I've been here on a Wednesday night, and uh, I'll be gone again next week, and then back after Memorial Day, and then Shelley will teach in early June, and I'll teach a couple times in June. We have David Loy coming, I think, on the 19th of June, a, a wonderful uh, in the Zen tradition, but he does a lot of teaching and writing. He's written so- several books on uh, some of his early books, really, and articles were about lack, just understanding that feeling of lack in the heart, deep in the heart, like something's missing. More recently, he's been doing a lot around... Um, the Buddhist teachings and responding wisely to the environmental crisis. So that's on Wednesday, the 19th of June. But tonight I'm here, <laughs> and I thought it'd be fun to look at our practice in, in terms of our relationship to money. It's always interesting, you know, because we always have this sense, you know, this is a, we're here, we do a Dharma practice. Some of you know that word, Dharma means the way it is, and, you know, some of the obvious things that dominate in our life, in our heart, like sex and money and power and relationships and earning a living and social justice issues, issues of power in the wider community, communities that we're part of. I mean, these are things that we live and breathe all day long, right? They're really relevant to being... uh, yeah, just navigating our life as a human being. So I was reflecting on this because I shared some thoughts with the staff at IMS where I was teaching the last couple of weeks in Massachusetts. Every once in a while, the teachers that are leading the retreats will have a presentation for the staff people there. It's a big retreat center. And uh, so we, we were talking about money. I thought, oh, it's a big topic here. Because it's, there are a lot of shadows, just generally in spiritual life. You know, one of the shadows, basically, as human beings have enough, you know, not so overwhelmed by the details that they're taking a closer look at the way that it is, we can get repulsed by life. Like, relationships are a mess, my body's a mess, politics is a mess, and then we... It feels, I mean, this is the shadow. It's not, it doesn't make sense when you really look at it, but haven't we all in different moments had that impulse like, I just don't want to be here. And a lot of religious systems have this transcendence, including Buddhism, this idea of transcendence, like get me out of here. Get me to heaven. Get me to some place that's really refined, really beautiful, the suburbs. <laughs> or whatever it might be. Or that next cool place, you know, Boulder, it's already too crowded, Berkeley, way too yuppie now. (laughs) I hear Portland, Maine is the next, and I think in enough time, Duluth will be the cool place. (laughs) But you see, it's always that sort of chasing after that refined, that idea of utopia, you know, where everything's going to be just right. And 
Yeah, so this money really fits into this because it's kind of a potent symbol. I mean, it's amazing. Like, imagine if I, coming into the room, just as an experiment with truth, as I was kind of getting set up here, I accidentally dropped a thick roll of bills. And the last one, outer one, was a $100 bill. I mean, just imagine the kind of judgment that somebody, a Buddhist meditation teacher, has a thick roll of $100 bills. It would be like, it kind of points at the shadow like, oh yeah, earthy things, worldly things, bad, right? Or how we might judge somebody driving into the parking lot with a really nice or really expensive car. Hey, way back, this is like in the mid-80s, I was managing a retreat, um, a New Year's retreat. It was like a five-day silent yoga and meditation retreat with Swami Satchidananda. And then there was another teacher that we would invite every year, Prabhasa Roshi Dharma. She was one of the first Western Zen teachers, a German woman, and quite impressive teacher. And so, because I was managing, she was standing there next to me, and Swami Satchidananda was coming, and he was the main teacher for this retreat, an Indian man and pretty well-known. He's dead now. But anyway, he was driving in, and, and he was driving a really nice car. Forget what it is, maybe a Jaguar or something like that, an expensive car. And, uh, and this very austere German Zen Roshi, you know, just... And she, she just has a, had this amazing air of simplicity and austerity. To, that was just her vibe. And she was a good teacher. And she turns and she looks at me and she said, is that his car? <laughs> right? Because it would have been a lot of... It wasn't. It was just one of his students' car that, you know, he, he was just visiting Santa Barbara to do this retreat. And one of his students in Santa Barbara had lent him the car for the week of the retreat. And so he was driving in. And before Swami Satchinata, back in some relatively small town in India, back, I think, in the 20s or 30s, when he was a young man, he was sort of worked at a little car shop. So he, was, he had this sort of interest in cars. So I'm sure he had a real trip driving this nice car. But it, but it was just interesting like how appalling that is, money. You know, and we, how we tend to think of money as being not spiritual. But money is just energy. I mean, it's just another thing. It's just another thing in the mo- moment. Same with poverty or good looks, or what you might call, in terms of societal standards, not good looks, or health, or not having health, or living in a cool place, or not living in a cool place. These are just part of what we call, generally, causes and conditions. And money maybe has sort of a special place, because in a way, symbolically, it represents this promise of what sensuality, sense existence, sense experience can deliver. Right? It's sort of a, uh, a symbol of the promise. If only I had X, Y, and Z, and probably a few other letters, then I'd be happy. If only I had that cabin, the perfect cabin, in the perfect location, paid for, right? and the property tax paid for, for all the years that I'm going to stay alive, <laughs> Then, then I'd be happy. 
and the car that wouldn't leave any environmental footprint so I could get up there and back, right? And they're just the right kind of neighbors, right? And all the wildlife except the really dangerous wildlife. <laughs> and it goes on and on. There's always that. And this is part of the promise. And money kind of represents our faith in that deliverance, the if only. And then we point to some aspect of experience that could be really nice. I was younger, I was healthier, I had more power, then I'd be happy. Because it seems that money can buy all of those things we might be able to imagine. Or at least slow down some of the things, like aging. If only I could have a really good massage every day. Somebody who really is good, you know, really knows subtle energy. Then that would be great. They'd have to live in, right? <laughs> or maybe next door so I could still have my privacy. It would have to be convenient. And then, you know, to really eat well, it takes a lot of time. Chopping all that stuff and juicing it and whatever else we have to do. We probably need a, our own chef, our own spiritual teacher, fully enlightened preferably, <laughs> and on and on. There's, uh, some of you know, uh, in the Buddhist tradition, like most spiritual traditions, they have stories about cosmology. And uh, the nice thing about the Buddhist tradition generally is these stories, myths, legends, whatever you want to call them, they're meant to be teachings, right? Like to help us understand. And so there's six realms, depending on how you cut it, and it's just interesting to think of them in terms of more generally how we relate to sense experience, the promise that sense experience might deliver, but more specifically even to money. So there's the hell realms. And, and remember, these are just words that point to the way it is for you and me sometimes. right? Anybody in the room not been in a hell realm? Right? Sometimes we cycle through hell realms where conditions are really difficult. That's like, in terms of money, you know, where uh, we don't have anything. And we're around people who do. Or we're kind of, um, you know, stuck in some way, being oppressed in some way. The next realm up is the hungry ghost realm, some of you know, right? Big appetite, huge appetite, but they have a mouth the size of a pinhole, so you can't really appease that appetite. That's like you don't have any money, but you have a lot of interesting catalogs. <laughs> all the possibilities, or you have friends who do have money who are telling you about all the things you can do with money, right? So you have this huge appetite for things, for sense experience, but very little opportunity. In the next realm, in the direction of more pleasant, more subtle, 
is uh, the animal realm. And this is sort of, uh, there's a, you know, defined by being uh, driven and caught by our genetics, by instinct. And I remember when I was thinking about this a while back, I remembered as a kid, some of you I'm sure have been up at the Paul Bunyan, I don't know, it's like a park near uh, the headwaters of the Mississippi. Anybody been there? Big statue of Paul Bunyan and the babe. What it's called, the blue ox, and uh, but back in the day, you know, this is probably mid '60s when I was a kid, and uh, we'd go up there, and they had these little cages where there were these chickens that would do some kind of trick. I don't really remember what the trick is. You'd put a nickel or a dime in the slot, and some music would play, and that would be the cue to the chicken to do its thing. You know, a backflip or whatever the chicken did. And then after doing that for 30 seconds, some corn would fall in to the cage. And so the chicken had been trained. You know, when the music plays, you do this trick. And sure enough, a little later, corn comes down. And this is a really uh, good metaphor for the animal realm, where the animals, and we've all inhabited the animal realm too, where we're just sort of you know, going through the week, punching the clock, doing our job, Friday we get our pay, we go blow it on alcohol or partying or movie, you know, party time. And then, you know, we sober up and Monday we're back in the grind again. And we're just sort of repeating cycles, always doing what we've done before, never really trying anything new, not really going anywhere different until we can't do it anymore, too tired, too old, too broken down, you know, and then either someone takes care of us or not. So that, we know that realm, a lot of people, a lot of us some of the time, some people a lot of the time inhabit that sort of kind of existence. The human realm in the cosmological point of view is a little bit more reflective, right, where there's enough privilege, really, to be spacious, to kind of look around like, whoa, you know, where we see the hungry ghosts, we see people in hell realms, we see people who are just not being very reflective, acting like we are animals, humans, right? So just acting out that kind, that level of conditioning, and it kind of wakes us up a little. This is the human realm. How can I be a little bit more skillful, right? And they... And this is like what we'd say in normal language, we become a moral being. It's like where we start to care and we start to be willing to play by the rules. It's like, you know what? We're all going to feel a little bit better if we agree to some rules here about how we're going to be. Otherwise, it's just going to be that guy with the biggest club or whatever, the person with the most power running the show. So let's start playing by some rules. It's like I forget who the philosopher was, but you know, like a moral being means that if I don't know what family I'm going to be born into, given that I don't know what family I'm going to be born into, what kind of society would I create? Right? Knowing that we, it's going to be a random dropping into some family in the society, what kind of society would I create? 
So that's like the human realm where there's some reflection about uh, using the power we have, the money that we have, the influence that we have, to sort of have that bigger view. How can we maximize together, can we maximize happiness? How can we take care of each other to minimize unnecessary suffering? And it goes on, right? There's more refined realms than that where conditions are really nice. I joked, you know, being in the suburbs or being one of those cool places where everybody is really competent, has an interesting job and well compensated for it and nobody who has problems can afford to live there, you know. So the, the sort of next level, this is not in the traditional depiction uh, the next level in the traditional one in early Buddhism would be the celestial or angelic realms, right? The very refined, beautiful realms. But in later Buddhist traditions, there was an intermediary realm, a little higher than human realm, called the warring gods realm. And these are beings that have a really good situation, like, you know, they live in a nice suburb, but they don't live in the best suburb, Right? <laughs> So there, it's another word that's used is the jealous gods, right? So they got it really nice, but there are beings that have it even nicer. So instead of enjoying the relative comfort that they have, they're scheming. So it's, uh, is it Mount Merrow? I'm not sure, but in that sort of traditional story, mythological <coughs> Buddhist myths, you know, it's sort of like there are beings that are further up that celestial mountain, Right? And, and these warring gods, they're at a pretty nice place. They've got a good view, but they don't have as nice of a view. Right? And so they're trying to get to the top of the heap, and they can't. Because the, their jealousy keeps them from being in the more revi- refined realm. Because right? it's a gross emotion, being jealous, being envious. And we certainly know that realm. You know, good stuff happened, we're feeling pretty good. And we talk to our friend, and something even better happened to them. You know, we got a promotion, or we got a good grade, or you know, whatever it might be. We got a nice car, but they got a nicer car. We got the iPhone 8, and they got, I don't even know what the newest one is. And X, etc. right? They don't even use numerals now. Yeah, Arabic numerals, that's right. Roman numerals, they're moving on or something. And then the Deva realms, this is sort of like, you see this in, in sort of certain, if you have friends or maybe you yourself or grew up in this sort of lofty state of people who had money, families have always had money maybe. And it's like, so well-to-do, so privileged, so fortunate. Again, this isn't bad. This is just the way it is sometimes, neither good nor bad, that they, it wouldn't even be appropriate to talk about money. Right? I uh, did a workshop a long time ago, forgetting the person's name. I think their first name was Ruby, and it was about class. I was, uh, we brought her in. I think it was the Minneapolis School District brought her in. To, what's her? Ruby Payne. 
Payne, P A Y N E. Yeah, Ruby Payne. Yeah, she was a trip, really good uh, trainer. But anyway, she had this simple metaphor, simile for understanding, helping us understand class. And uh, it just refers to like how people relate to food. And so if you're in the less privileged, poverty, difficult circumstances, the question around food is, like a mother to her kids, for example, did you get enough? Makes sense, right? Did you get enough? You're still hungry. Middle class, the question would be, did you like it? Did you like the food? And for the more privileged, wealthy folks, do you like how it looks? Right? The presentation becomes important. The china, the silverware, the flour, the how the like if you've gone to a nicer restaurant these days, right? It's a little bit like a Deva realm where like even the portions are very small, right? And it's almost like correlates with the cost of the restaurant. You know, it's like very small, very beautifully presented. The the flavors are very refined, nuanced. It's like an art. But if you're struggling in life, you're not necessarily interested in art. You're interested in safety at one end, right? At the hellish realm, you just want relief. You don't care about long-term. In the hell realms, when we're in the hell realms, we don't care about a long-term strategy. We just want relief. And we're even willing in those states to do what in the long-term is going to cost us more pain to get some relief. That's why it's hell realm. That's why we're so stuck when we're in a hell realm is we keep doing stuff to get a little relief that keeps undermining our long-term happiness like addiction, right? And that sort of brings us to the hungry ghost, right? Where we have a little bit more sense, but we get a little bit of gratification. We got a pinhole mouth, so we get some sense of how sweet sense experience can be, because it can be, clearly. Sense experience is gratifying. Some sense experiences are gratifying, but it doesn't last. And on and on. So this kind of gives us the whole spectrum about how we relate to sense experience and money being sort of the primary symbol of the promise of sense experience, right? And then the question is, like the more we see, like wherever we are at any moment, in a hell realm, in a deva realm, where things are really good, and somehow when we're at one of the qualities of being in a deva realm, you can't imagine, it's so good, you have so much safety and privilege, you can't imagine it not being that way. Like in the traditional uh, depiction, it's like they're born and then they immediately, no infancy, infancy they immediately become sort of in the full bloom like a 19-year-old. And then that you exist in that sort of perfect, of course, their body isn't fleshy like ours. It's like light, radiant light, energy body, right? And you exist in that full bloom of youth through your whole life, which lasts for eons, you know, inconceivable lengths of time in that depiction. 
And then when you're about to die, because even now those realms end, it's very quick. You just go from that full bloom to death in just a, you know, a few moments. So you don't kind of get older and then a little older, a little bit more decrepit, right? You just go from full bloom. So it's really shocking. Because so, so the reason they have that depiction is this point that when we're so privileged, it doesn't occur to us that it shouldn't be that way, that it may not always be that way. It's, we're deluded by how comfortable our existence has been, how easy it's been for us. So this really helps us understand, like, it's not that our relationship to money is bad. We just want to understand the whole spectrum, right? Because what it does is it takes the sheen off of sense experience, the, delu- the delusive, deluded sheen, right? Because the thing about money and sense experience, it always seems like a real answer to life. God, if I could only get to bed tonight, I'm so tired. If I could only, if only this. And we're so busy thinking about the next if only, we rarely or we less often catch, you know, I've been doing this if only for a long time. And a lot of those if onlys I've actually been able to gratify. And yet, I'm really not in a different place. I'm still in that place of thinking, if only, if only I find a partner, if only I get a different partner. So the reason for this kind of talk is to really look at the bigger picture. And you know, the Buddha's teachings, he didn't go right to the teaching of renunciation. He would mostly initially help people understand like, oh, you want your life to work better? You want more ordinary happiness to happen in your life? Okay, I've got a plan for you. I've checked it out, worked for me. I'm pretty sure it's a natural law that it will work for anybody given enough time, right? Because there's a lot in play. A lot of that, a lot of what is in play, you and I are not in control of. Like, we were already born into the family we were born into. We've already been born into the society we've been born into. We already have the genetic makeup, like this body is already this way. But given everything that's already in play, right? how do I, in an ordinary sense, so I'm not talking about a spiritual sense, in an ordinary way, how do I maximize well-being? And the Buddha was really not afraid to go there, this sort of more mundane level of happiness. You want to be happy? You might think someone says, well, get your act together, lean in. I mean, there's some truth to that. Work is one of those things. There was one talk he gave, you know, he lists on a grosser level conditions for worldly progress, or, yeah, progress. Persistent effort, right? Like knowing where to dig in, knowing where to lean in. Watchfulness. So whatever wealth, whatever power, whatever, whatever you gain, you take care of it. 
And then he says, so kings don't take it. Or um, there's another kings and uh, relatives who, <laughs> you know, sneak it away from you. Or even your kids don't take it, right? So you, you, you kind of watch over it, make sure it's in a safe place, hang out with good friends, trustworthy friends, and you save more than you spend. Right? That your expenses don't exceed what you're taking in. I mean, it's pretty common sense. So that's just on that material level. But then in terms of a more subtle level in the heart, like just that deeper sense of well-being, but again, not even on a spiritual level now or just on this sort of simple spiritual level. He said if by cultivating generosity, sila, which is this moral integrity around non-harming, not harming others, and developing the mind. And this is where we really begin to understand the deeper movement of letting go or renunciation. Because generosity, like to just smile at somebody instead of to be a grouch, or to share some food with somebody. In one section of the Discourses of the Buddha, he says, even if you're throwing some scraps away, it's, it's really helpful to have the intention, like, and I, I've started doing this with compost. It's like, I put the food in the compost. You know, Minneapolis picks up compost. But I have the sense, like, I'm not just throwing it away, but some really good soil is going to come out of it. It feels generous to put the cucumber peels or the whatever in the compost. But in the uh, sutta, the discourse, it's like even if you're pouring water that you use to wash out your bowl and it has some food scraps, you should have the wish, may there be some bugs or creatures that will find this food and eat it so that it's actually a little flavor of generosity because of the effect on the mind. And this is the thing, like we can live with a stingy attitude what can I get? Or I'll be nice to Don so that I can get him to do something for me. right? So there's a lot of that manipulative with our partners, friends, communities, where we participate, but it's, there's underneath there's this kind of manipulation, like I'm doing this so I can get this back. So this is what we call normal business. But a lot of families, it's not just business that operates this way, a lot of family dynamics operate this way too. Relationship dynamics operate this way too. So this first like mundane happiness is to understand that operating in more and more places in our life where it isn't stingy. So we talk about this usually once a month here at the center. Like what does a non-stingy relationship to common ground look like for you? Where the flavor, the aftertaste of your relationship with this organization and the teachers who teach here isn't stingy, but the flavor is that beautiful flavor of generosity. What does that look like for each of us? Because it's going to look different because our circumstances or conditions are different. And does that make you more happy than having the aftertaste of stinginess? Like, yeah, common ground the cheapest Buddhist meditation center in town. Right? <laughs> Great. Because that's how we are with business relationships. 
that's what we want. Like, oh yeah, Trader Joe's. You know, I could go to the Seward Co-op, but if I go to Trader Joe's, the tempeh at Seward Co-op is this price, I've noticed. The tempeh at Trader Joe's, a lot cheaper, right? Oh, I'll go there. And so that's just par for the course with business relationships. But it's just interesting to explore, like, well, what does that set in motion in our heart when we're having that strategic with everything in life? What's the best deal? What can I get away with in my relationship? You know, my partner cleaned last time in the house, you know, so technically it's my turn to clean next time, but I'm going to be out of town for a week, you know, and so maybe it will work out that they'll do it twice in a row. You know, all these sort of ways of, like, what can we get away with? And the, and the question the Buddha would ask you, like, you want to be happy, you've got to really see if that makes you happy, that manipulative, strategic, business-like negotiation with everything in your life. Does that make you happy, or does that make you tight? And then practice in different places so you build confidence, having a generous relationship when you relate to this person or this person community center or this, whatever, these different things we're in relationship in our life, and just see if having a more generous attitude makes you happy. So it's not about doing what's right, it's about what makes you happy in a very mundane, straightforward sense. And then the second one is sila, which is also has a flavor of generosity. It's like, you know what, I'm going to commit, I know I'll never get there perfectly, because I don't think it's possible to not cause harm and still stay alive. But, so it's not about being perfect at not causing harm. It's about developing the value of non-harming and giving ourselves more and more to the value so we pay more attention, we care about how we might be complicit and causing harm in all the little and big ways. And this care so that we're learning how to refrain from doing things, thinking things, saying things that cause harm, does that make us tight or does that make us happy? And then the Buddha would say, well, check it out. Because I think if you really check it out with a lot of care, you'll see that by Getting interested in non-harming, you become happier and happier. And it's a kind of generosity. It's just a more subtle kind of generosity. So instead of giving stuff away or being generous with our time, it's really about giving safety away. Like I'm in community, but you can trust me because I'm deepening this value of not causing harm, not being complicit and what causes harm. I'm paying attention. And then it's like people begin to get that about us. Oh yeah, this person is trustworthy because they value not harming. And even if they make a mistake, don't see something and cause harm, they really want to know about it because they don't want to cause harm. And we, our life starts to work better. How we are in community starts to feel better 
because of this commitment to not cause harm, to refrain from doing things that cause ourselves or others harm. And of course, this last training that makes us happy to develop the heart and mind, it's really about developing sensitivity. How can I be in this world, instead of being dull and callous, it seems like being dull and callous might make sense, because the world's a mess, and there's a lot of suffering and a lot of injustice, and I don't really want to know about it, because it hurts. That's what we think. But it's a lot of work to stay disconnected. And so this path of sensitivity actually allows us to do the dana, the generosity, more nimbly and skillfully, like how to give in a way that makes us happy. The sensitivity really helps that. And the sensitivity really helps us refrain from causing harm in ways that are really skillful. So we need to commit to sensitivity that's developing the heart So it can be a more balanced and sensitive instrument. Feel what's here to feel. See what's here to see. And then that allows the generosity and this commitment to non-harming. And this really builds the ordinary level of happiness. And then here's the kicker, and I'll end with this point. You know, so then now we kind of have gotten the pointing out instruction just how to be successful in terms of being a happy human being. So over time, through mindful awareness, paying attention, we've learned how to be generous in a way that makes us happy. Because if we give everything away, it doesn't make us happy, it makes us afraid. right? So it's really a skill, because part of, we're being generous to ourselves too. It's not like, I can only be generous to other people, but not to myself. Same with this commitment to non-harming. We put ourselves in the mix. So as we develop the sensitivity, right, it's like a very interesting moment-to-moment figuring it out, navigating, like how to be generous, how to commit to non-harming. What does that look like? There's no sort of, okay, I got it. You got the plan. This is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. It's like moment-to-moment we're figuring out how to be generous, how to commit, to non-harming, what that's going to look like in this moment. So that sensitivity has to be moment to moment. And we get pretty good, and life starts to work over time, starts to work better. We feel like we belong better in life. We feel like we're loved better in life, taken care of by causes and conditions. Still, there's a lot in play, like weather, like other social movements, wars, and things like that, that we're not in control of. Stock market crashes and anything else that can happen. But generally, we're setting in motion. We've been planting seeds of happiness, and they're sprouting, and life is going better than it would have otherwise gone. And then we get this really potent teaching that generally the Buddha is really for people who have experienced enough balance, enough, safety. And then the Buddha says something like, the short version is, nothing whatsoever should be clung to. So it's the teaching that the deepest happiness is the renunciation, not so much of sense experience, but the renunciation, the letting go of attachment to sense experience. 
So we're letting go of expecting the gratification that we get when we have a nice experience or the pain we get when we're having a bad sense experience. We're letting go of that defining our life. Because an ordinary human being, as opposed to, let's say, an awakened or wise human being, an ordinary human being, we evaluate our life basically it's like this sort of scale, okay? All the good things that are happening, pleasant things that are happening, okay? 25 pounds. All the bad, difficult, painful things that are happening, 30 pounds. Oh, I guess we go this way, right? You win. My life sucks. Or if it's the other way, I got a great life. Too bad for the rest of you, right? But that's sort of how we do it. Now, in that mix is, you know, my kids love me, my kids don't love me, my partner's great, I'm having a hard time with my partner, my body's doing great, my body's falling apart. Right? So there's a lot in that mix, not just money in the bank. It's just one piece. But it's a big piece because it relates to these other things too. Right? We're more attractive to others when we have money. We can take care of the body better when we have money. So that's the ordinary view, just sort of trying to get the good stuff to weigh more than the bad stuff, right? And the Buddha says, why are you doing that? So now I've taught you how to do that better, generosity, commitment to non-harming, develop sensitivity, right? So now that you're relatively good at that scale, getting more good stuff and less of the bad stuff, still take an honest look at it. See how you never get done. There's no, like when, we've, when our desires have been gratified, we just have the next moment. We need the next moment of gratification. We're never done with this endless trying to get more good stuff and less bad stuff. And then the heart is ready to listen to the Buddhist teachings on renunciation. And it's a way, like it's a, this is a superficial way of talking about it, but It's basically stepping back and observing how the mind, how the heart's been relating to sense experience, seeing how limited and exhausting. It's like we try and the image the Buddha used, it's very graphic. It's like a dog chewing a bone that has absolutely no flesh on it, but it's really hopeful. But all, what does it get? Bleeding gums. And that even confuses it more, right? It's like, taste bloody. There's got to be some meat here. But the blood is from the dog's own gums, right? Because it's chewing on the bone, trying to get something. And this is the image the Buddha uses. Like, we're having sense experience. We're trying to get something that sense experience can't actually deliver. Perfect satisfaction. Lasting satisfaction. Right? You could have the best meal in the world, and then it's over. Even like when you find your soulmate, somebody you really get along with, you still love them, they seem to love you, it seems pretty harmonious. Has anybody been made perfectly happy? No. And even so, even that, that something that might last, let's say the marriage, the partnership lasted 65 years, even that will end. 
so the heart then, then like, well, what's the alternative? Right? So this is the exploration. This is the meditative. It doesn't mean you're sitting in meditation. It's really the inner exploration of like being in the world where there are sense experiences coming and going. Sometimes a lot of good stuff comes our way. Sometimes a lot of bad stuff. But really exploring the happiness of non-attachment. So this is interesting. This, you know, just to come back to money now at the end. So how to be in the world where there's money. Sometimes not much. Sometimes maybe even being in debt. Sometimes maybe a lot or relatively a lot but not imagining that it's more than what it is. It's a kind of power, and as a power, it's neutral. So it can be a deluding power, meaning bringing my mind back to thinking that sense experience is more than what it is, limited, can't really feed on it, can't really deliver lasting happiness, but it always seems to give the appearance that it can, if only, man. Right? So we want to see that money is just what it is. It kind of amplifies the world of sense experience. It makes it seem more seductive. Right? It's relatively easy for us to let go of the world when we don't have any nice stuff. The body hurts. It's old. Nobody loves me. I'm all alone. I'm cold. Right? And hungry. Well, but see, that's not non-attachment. That's attachment to get me the hell out of here. Because this isn't delivering. So I'll take my chances on rebirth or whatever you think's next. Right? So real non-attachment is not aversion. You're not averse to the world and you're not attached to the world. Non-attachment is dealing with the money you have dealing with the power you have, the beauty, the health, any of the privileges that you have in life, and doing something beautiful with it, but not expecting it to make you happy. And I'll just end with this point, because it's so poignant around relationships. Um, Susan Pivar, I'm not exactly sure how she pronounces her last name. I think it's P-I-V-A-R, a Buddhist author, I think in the Shambhala tradition. She's written a lot about relationships and other Buddhist topics, but she has this great story where she just heard herself saying this. It happened in her life. Someone who she met at a conference, and they got to know each other and liked each other. And he was just sharing, yeah, I've, I met this person. We've decided to move in. I'm a lot older than this other person. And went on to talk about some of the other details of the relationship. And then asked Susan, do you think it can work? And she heard herself saying this really wise thing. Well, of course it can work as long as you don't expect it to make you happy. That's, you know, of course it's okay to have a lot of money as long as you don't expect it to make you happy. Of course it's okay to be privileged, to have beauty, to have health, to have privilege of one kind or another, as long as you don't expect it to make you happy. It's when we cling to it unconsciously often or expect it to be more than what it is. It's just, in a way, amplifying our relationship to sensuality, to sense experience, because we can do more when we have money, 
when we have power, when we have privilege. Right? Which means we can dig our hole deeper. Or we can learn a thing or two. So I'll leave it here. There's a little time. Be nice to hear your own reflections around money and more generally sensuality, sense experience, what you've learned the easy way or the hard way in life. Remember to point the mic right at your mouth. You want to start off? And then we'll go to Laura next. Hi, I'm Shannon. Uh, so one thing that like came to mind uh, when we were talking about money is um, money and fear for the future. Uh, so um, I'll be going back to school for psychology, and then after my BA, I'm going to go after um, getting uh, going into uh, my master's for art therapy. And like I like looked at all the colleges. The one that's like really I'm like really drawing me is Naropa, and um, it's one of the most expensive ones out there. And um, my friend says you're going to be paying for your master's your entire life anyways. Just do it. And um, <laughs> um, but you know. I feel kind of ridiculous because I'm like, I haven't even done my bachelor's for psychology yet, and I'm still, you know, I'm not even there yet. I feel ridiculous for, like, fearing of, like, you know, okay, what if I go do it and I'm not going to get paid enough and I go bankrupt and, like, all these worries come, but it's like I feel ridiculous for that. So I'm I'm interested in hearing the take on, like, financial like security and like the fear of that yeah well I don't have any answers to that (laughs) (laughs) except I notice what I feel when I heard you saying that like my own anxiety and both the the kind of tension around the possibility of kind of going to a place like Naropa or any place that might be really enlivening and a lot of good learning. And then, uh, and then the fear, the anxiety about like having 20, 30, 50, $80,000 of debt or whatever it might be. And, uh, and that's such an interesting place in our lives these days. And especially for younger people who are dealing with you know, college and grad school debt. And how do we know what kind of investment is appropriate. What we have in the end is our motivation. And to just take enough time to really look. And what of it is greed? The motive, you're being motivated by greed. And what is it in your heart that be a, might be a motivation of generosity and love and compassion and wanting to set something good in motion? But this is like... Um, there's some real, like more on an animal level, there's certain like principles about uh, scoping out the situation, seeing what's in play around us, and willing to submit to the conditions of our life as opposed to what we would like life to be. But what is the world asking of me? You know, what are there resources that are allowing me, that are supporting me to do this? And if not, should I be forcing something to happen if there aren't other forces available to help make this happen? 
Because part of uh, life is willing to submit to the causes and conditions or the circumstances that are showing up for us. And that's, that's a real um, letting go on its own, right? Letting go of our idealism. It's like really interesting this age of, you know, in our 20s and maybe into the 30s, a lot of it is this grounding into the reality of life around relationships, around livelihood, around the world and how the world works and how um, systems, it's like what real changes we have to kind of scale down. Like I remember in college thinking, I'm going to save the world. I was going to get a PhD in economics. I was an undergraduate major in economics, and you know, I was going to get a PhD, and then I was going to sort of figure out how to reorganize things so there wasn't poverty anymore around the world, not even the United States. I mean, I wasn't that naive, but it was sort of, I, I was going to lean into that. You know, that was the thing. And, uh, and then to realize, like, well, what can we do and how corrupting everything is. So like even going to grad school is corrupting. And being part of supposedly good institutions, it's, you get kind of shaped, you know, and you become part of the problem. And you look around enough and you see that often enough, and then it really kind of sobers us up. And then we realize more than like doing these grand things, what we can bring to the world is sort of modeling wholesome emotions or wholesome motivations. So it isn't so much whether you go to Naropa or not, or get a psychology master's degree or not, or you know, PsyD degree or not. It's like who you are when you're doing with whatever you're going to do might actually be more important than what you do or don't do. Yeah, thanks. You have just a few moments, Laura, if you want to make it quick. Yeah, um, I think about this a lot. <laughs> um, and... Um, yeah, one thing that comes to mind is, you know, our modern culture nowadays, like we pay for healthcare and we pay for childcare and we, you know, pay for food versus like 2000 years ago, we were generally speaking more in like community and these things were provided by, you know, the community. So, and then I look at my life and, like, the journey I've had for the past few years, like, barely making enough um, to make ends meet, and then, like, feeling like I have more than enough, and through that process, feeling a sense of safety, and then feeling, like, so abundant, and the things that I wished for that I wanted, like, retreats in Thailand, like, I could do, but I feel like, meh, you know, um, happen because of that sense of safety from money. Yeah. And then I think, okay, like now if I went to going broke again, like I don't, I'm not totally convinced <laughs> that I would feel um, so free. So Yeah, and we want to respect the need for safety because we're much more creative and generous when we feel safe. Now, what makes you feel safe will be different what make other people feel safe, but we have to actually listen to our own hearts. It's kind of a primal need. If we saw a baby hurt on the sidewalk, we would show up. So if we're that baby, if there's a baby saying, 
I don't feel safe, then why wouldn't we respond to it? Okay, we'll go do something and put some money in the bank. You know, and then maybe you'd be willing to take some risks after that. Thanks, Laura. We need to leave it here. Just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Just enough time for one or two breaths together. It's really okay to let go of the words. Thanks for coming, everyone. Nice to be here together. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.